Take your Bible, if you have it, turn to Matthew chapter 21. I think out of the better part of a year that we've been in the gospel of Matthew, according to Matthew, I think this chapter has actually gotten the longest amount of time in it, an entire month in chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 33, Jesus is speaking here. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. They did the same to him. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, to Jesus, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Let's pray one more time. Father, we do ask now that you would give understanding to your word. Give faith where there is none or greater faith where it is weak. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. What does it mean to be free? I don't mean like free in the store, like, you know, buy one, get one free. I don't mean that sense. I mean like, what what is freedom? What does it mean to be free? It's one of those words that we uh, talk about, I would say, somewhat frequently in this great nation in which we live. But I, I don't know about many of you, but I grew up in a time in which kind of our civics classes had changed enough that I'm not sure I actually have a technical definition for what it means to be free, Uh, which is intriguing because, you know, periodically we run into conversations or topics that force us to think about uh, that definition that we have or that we don't have. We've been able to watch this week, if you pay attention to the news, I'm not mad if you don't, Uh, The vast majority of it's probably not useful, but we've been able to pay attention to two nations uh, beginning to really ask this question, what does it mean to be free? We've watched Cuba 
to the south of us having to wrestle through. What, is it, what does it mean to be free? Do we want to be free? And what does a government that gives freedom look like? Can the government get freedom? We've been able to watch in France, if you haven't followed that, the French government basically kind of forcing the use of vaccination passports in order to be able to go to anywhere like malls and restaurants and anything like that and to see uh, the, a substantial portion of the nation kind of rise up and begin to ask the question as to what is freedom. Now, to be fair, the French tend to love a good riot, so uh, uh, you can kind of figure that out on their own, but they, they do tend to love that. But it does beg the question, what does it mean to be free? And I, I think this chapter is probably going to, in some fashion, I hope today, showcase in your heart that when you interact with the Lord and when you think about God, you're probably not using the right definition of what freedom means to interact with God. Now, we've picked up here kind of in the middle of a conversation in chapter 21, Jesus has been talking, if you looked in verse 23, he's been talking with the chief priests and the elders of the people. He's been speaking, having a, a kind of long-running conversation in the temple. We know this is Tuesday morning of the week that he uh, is taken to the cross. He is sitting in the outside of the temple, uh, in the kind of outside courtyard, and is teaching to a collection of folks that have come to sit at his feet and listen, as was a common practice for him. As he's teaching, uh, a group kind of gathers to listen, and the group gets a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger, and in fact, actually here then draws the chief priests and the elders of the people. So now we're not just having regular conversation with regular kind of, you know, uh, normal people anymore. The conversation has morphed into a discussion uh, with those in the corridors of power. It's also important to know that this chief priests and elders uh, kind of the scribes and temple leaders that are involved in this conversation, they're the good people, right? I mean, in terms of like looking at a, a cultural moment, these are not the kind of people that Jesus is talking to that you would think, oh, these are the bad guys in any stories. I mean, we've read other parts in here where we've had to deal with politicians and tax collectors and prostitutes and all sorts of kind of other categories of people that we might kind of question, are they the good guys or the bad guys? But this is a conversation that's taking place with those that we would automatically assume are the good guys. They're the good people. They're the clean people. They're the, the educated people. They're the people that look good, that smell good, that act nicely. They have polished social manners and social graces. They're the kind of people just like us. Right? In, in terms of when we read the scripture, I do know that most of us like to kind of inject ourselves into the story. That's a good thing to do in some cases. Unfortunately, most of the time we try to make ourselves the hero in the text. Uh, in this sort of conversation, realistically, the people that Jesus is speaking with are people very much like many of us would be. The, the good citizens. The good people. And as Jesus has kind of been conversing with them, they've really asked the question in that section there, 23 to 27, of by what authority do you do your ministry, Jesus? Who gives you the right to talk about me? Who gives you the right to speak about my life? Who gives you the right to make claims about truth 
and reality? What gives you the right to tell me that I'm wrong? And he's already had the first kind of half of the dust up with them there in the parable of the two sons, basically kind of calling them out to say, look, you may be trying to obey with your hands, but your hearts are far from God. And in verse 33 begins a new parable. And I would again remind you, if you read your Bibles, a parable uh, is a story with usually kind of one main point. Some of the more complicated ones might have kind of a second point. But the details only matter in so much as they kind of advance that point. It's not an allegory, right? And Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. The Wizard of Oz is an allegory where every little detail matters for the point that's being made. Uh, every person represents somebody. Every action represents something. Every detail represents something. In a parable, it's just the big details that matter that advance the story. So Jesus tells them a parable, and it's a parable with multiple characters. We can kind of figure them out fairly easily. The master of the house owns a vineyard. That's the person who is representative of God himself. He is the one who's created the world. He's the one who's in charge of all things, and out of all of his creation has kind of planted for himself a vineyard. This is Old Testament language referring specifically to Israel to his people, to his particular folks. And he describes a a master that owns a very extensive vineyard. In fact, actually, it's so extensive. It has its own wine press built in. It has its own watchtower built in so that you would be able to kind of safeguard and see if there's anyone coming to kind of rob it or things in a wall around the outside. Now, this master has leased it to tenants, to workers, to servants who are to, and it's kind of a a transactional arrangement. The person who owns the vineyard would lease it to what we would know in in America as sharecroppers. Uh, You would go and work in the vineyard You would treat it much like it was your own vineyard, but when uh, the vines produced grapes, a certain portion, say 30% of them, went back to the person who owned the land. That was how you paid your rent. You paid it in, uh, not in money or gold or things like that, but you paid it with the fruit of the vineyard. That would be the arrangement. Right? I'll let you live rent-free on my property. I'll let you live you know, rent-free working my farm. The harder you work, the better the crops, the more money you make. Right? It's a really smart arrangement. Uh, and what you pay me is just 30% of your profit or something like that. It's a good arrangement, one that's very common in the day. There's a problem with this one, though is that there's a conflict. The bargain that has been struck that everybody would agree to, that everybody would have understood, is suddenly rejected. And when the owner of the vineyard goes to sin to summon the taxes, to summon his portion, the tenants don't want to pay. Maybe it's greed, we don't know. Maybe it's a sense of entitlement. Hey, this is our land now. We, we own it. We've been working it for a year. I've been here a long time. We're not actually told the reason why they don't do it. We're just told that they refuse. And it's interesting that Jesus is explaining the situation because as he explains this, I, I think he's explaining the nature of the human condition very well. You see, what he's explaining is that this sinful heart 
a heart that has sin in it, that does evil things, that has done evil things, that has uh, any sort of inclination that isn't good. The sinful heart mistakes the freedom given by God as freedom away from God. Right, I'll say that again. The sinful heart mistakes the freedom given by God as freedom away from God. You see, that's part of the, the interesting part of the arrangement that the owner of the vineyard would have with the tenants is you could work as hard as you wanted on the portion of your land, right? If four acres of the vineyard were yours uh, as part of your lease, you could work that four acres as hard as you wanted to. If you wanted to be lazy and, you know, kind of sit on your rear end and not do anything and just know that you had a small crop, you were allowed to do that. You wouldn't make any money, but you were allowed to do that. If you wanted to be super faithful and constantly weed and constantly, you know, bring in manure as fertilizer and do all the things you wanted, you were allowed to do that too. You treated it the way that you wanted. In fact, interestingly, the arrangement was designed so that the workers had maximum freedom. The only thing they were responsible for was to pay the tax to the one who owned the land. The problem is, of course, that when it comes time for it to be due, they refuse. And say, we're just not going to. We we don't want to give that. That's beyond what we will give. And the interesting thing is, They've kind of really misunderstood the situation, haven't they? Who does the vineyard belong to? Not to them. It belongs to the landowner. They just happen to live there. Some of you grew up in homes where that was one of the jokes given in parental discipline, right? When you were maybe a preteen and being naughty and maybe got mouthy with mom or dad, mom or dad would inform you very carefully and very pointedly. You might want to be careful how much you run your mouth. You don't own this house. You just happen to live here because I let you live here. Obviously said tongue-in-cheek. But it's the nature of the sinful heart to kind of mistake the freedom that we're given as freedom from, not freedom by. And we do this all the time in our regular lives. Right? We, we understand that the God, God has made us with immense amount of freedom. When I got up this morning, I got to pick my own clothes. That's why they don't match half the time, because I picked them myself. Right? My wife doesn't do that for me. That's not on her. That's always on me. Right? When I went to put my socks and shoes on, I got to determine if I wanted to put my left sock on first or my right sock. I understand that I live in a world where I have immense amounts of freedom. If I wanted to drive here on the interstate this morning as fast as my car would take me, I could have done that. I don't think I probably would have made it. I would have killed myself along the way, but I could have tried because the Lord has made his reality with immense amounts of freedom. If I wanted to eat breakfast, I could have. If I didn't want to eat breakfast, I didn't have to. If I wanted water, I could have had that. I could have gotten coffee if I wanted to do that. I I can do not whatever I want, but very much whatever I want. The problem, though, is that we then forget that God is still in charge of my life. And in fact, actually, any freedom that I have on a daily basis is loaned. 
right? It's, it, it's transactional. It, it's loan. It's on loan. You are not God of your life. You do not ultimately tr- make all of your decisions. God is in charge. And you say, well, no, I, got, I chose which sock I put on this morning. And I'm like, well, okay, fair enough. But I mean, honestly, think about it for just a moment. Think about if you're going to be intellectually honest. Many of us in here have had young children. When your kids are young, how many of your days went the way that you planned them? Right? How many of your family vacations did somebody get a stomach bug? Hey, we woke up to pink eye this morning in an eyelash infection. I don't even know what that is, but that's what we woke up to this morning. Not me, thankfully. One of the others. Right? It only takes just the tiniest little things for us to kind of run up against the boundaries of our lives where we kind of have to realize, like, it's outside of my control. And honestly, those are the moments in our lives where we tend to get the most anxious, the most neurotic, the most uptight, the most frustrated, the most angry, the most scared, the most... Uh, because it's outside of our control. And that's before... We run into things like grave sickness, right? We can tell ourselves that we're as free as we want to be, but your freedom doesn't stop a heart attack and doesn't stop cancer. It doesn't stop a diagnosis that you don't want. You are not ultimately free of your own life. The great reality, though, is that we try to live that way constantly, don't we? Now, I recognize in this room we have unbelievers and we have believers. Thank the Lord we have a number of both of those. Praise the Lord. I'm so happy for that. Right? The, the reality is for most, not all, but most that are unbelievers, you try to live your life pretending that you're constantly in charge, that you're constantly free, that no one has placed their shackles upon you. And you know how I know you do that? Because honestly, unfortunately, sometimes Christians do the same, don't we? Because we have that lingering corruption in our sin, that lingering little bit of evil left, we we try to pretend that we're really and actually free. But honestly, when we go to bed at night, we all know that's a lie. You see, that's the great joke in all of this, that any bit of kind of conversation about real freedom from people, it's the emperor's new clothes. We all talk about it like it's real. But the second that something happens outside of our control, the second the drunk driver doesn't stop at the red light, we suddenly are confronted with the reality, we're not in charge. The second the doctor says, I'm so sorry, it's not good news. The second the child says, mom and dad, I have something to tell you. You're not going to be happy. We're not in charge. 
The sinful heart wants to pretend like it is. It wants to, to kind of act like it is. We want to kind of shove our head in the sand or, you know, try to put our fingers in our ears, la, 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 la. If I pretend hard enough, maybe it'll be true. The problem is, is at the end of the day, you can't get around it. You know how I know? Because if I was in charge, I would never grow old. I suspect that I will, though, unless I die young. Jesus doesn't stop there. He takes the conflict between the landowner uh, and the tenants and intensifies it. The, the landowner sends representatives. He sends rounds of servants. Interesting, verse 35, what's the response that they have? Well, they beat one, they kill another, and they stone another. Maybe that one lives through the stoning, which is probably worse than death itself. These servants are representative in the story of the prophets. They are representative of ultimately God's word. And what this looks like is the Lord is saying, look, you've been given a life in which there is kind of really and genuinely the illusion of freedom that that you have the ability to act and to choose. And in many cases you can, but at the end of the day, God is in charge. And guess what? The God who is in charge of all of creation, the God who is in charge of your life, the God who is in charge of my life has given us very clear explanation as to how that creation works. He's told us time after time after time after time how that creation operates. And yet, what's the nature of the human heart? (laughs) To go full-blown ostrich, right? Shove our head in the sand turtle, pull our heads into our shells, right? The three unwise monkeys that, you know, have their fingers in their ears, their eyes covered. We ignore everything that we can. God's word was given to the Jews. Ultimately here, this is what Jesus is referring to in kind of the small scale, was given to the Jews over thousands of years. This book written over thousands of years, and the Jews ultimately Instead of being ready for Jesus when he shows up, they reject him. That's why we read John 19, right? The very men that Jesus is talking to in just a couple of four days are going to be the ones crying out, murder him, crucify him. We'd rather have him die like an animal than for him to be alive. And friends, here's the great reality for us is that uh, unfortunately... Remember, what are the characters in the story that we're most like? Well, temperamentally, we're much like the ones listening. The good people. The people who make good money. The people who live nice, clean, well-protected lives that aren't, you know, constantly filling their world with bank robbery and other sorts of terrible things like that. No, they're the good folks. And Jesus says to them, those are the people that oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes aren't listening to the word. They think being free means being in charge of their own lives. It means being a good citizen. It means shaping our lives according to even what our culture says so that we're better than our neighbor. And it's not listening to the word of God. But 
But it doesn't stop with the word. In fact, it intensifies even further that the the owner of the vineyard says, well, they killed the previous servants. This is the most optimistic landowner in the history of the world. Uh, They've killed the other servants. I'll send my son. They won't kill him. I mean, they premeditated murder previously, but I'm sure they're done with that phase of their life. They've grown out of it, maybe, and sends the son. What do they do? Rather than yielding to the son, rather than listening to the one who owns the actual vineyard that they're standing in, rather than listening to the one who is in charge of them, they throw him out and they kill him, which is what they're going to do to Jesus in just a few short days. Again, the sinful heart manifests this mistaken freedom in a rejection of God's word and in a rejection of God's son. Now again, acknowledging we have believers and unbelievers in the room, I'm thankful that we have that. This is a sweet time in our church that we have that almost every Sunday and that's a really happy thing. Do try to answer your objections and your concerns as best I can. And I acknowledge that, that there's two types of rejection that are very common. One is a direct rejection to just say, no way. No way is Jesus who he says he is in the face of all evidence, in the face of you know, thousands of years of human history, in the face of all truth, in the face of all of the Bible, just no way. I understand that. If that's you, if you find yourself in that situation, friend, Jesus is talking to you now. You're the one that is rejecting the Son. It is not good. You must stop. More likely and more probably honestly, more dangerously for most of us, is not a direct rejection, but an indirect one. It looks something like this. Jesus is a good man. He had a lot of wisdom. Period. Friends, that is a rejection of Jesus. Because that is not what Jesus himself says he is. Jesus never says he is a good man. He never says he is a good teacher only. Jesus says that he is the son of God and the son of man. 100% God, 100% man, 100% perfection and holiness. He is the agent of creation, the one who is the word that spoke us into existence. He is God himself. And to just say that he's a good man and maybe had some wisdom is to undersell him in the most evil of ways. This is the way that I think is probably the most common in our current culture where if you just walked out on the street and found just any random person that perhaps didn't know the Lord Jesus or love him would say, well, I think he's probably a good moral teacher. Well, yeah, he's God. He invented morality. Fair enough. You're not wrong, but you're really not right. And I would say for those that would call themselves Christians in the room, this is where our danger is, honestly, friends. That we would think that we love Jesus, but in doing so, we're trying to make him into a small, manageable, safe Jesus that we can control. And the reality of the matter is we've never been in control. Jesus is in control. 
Read it in John 19. Even death can't control him. He gave up his spirit. A couple of days he's going to take it up again and raise himself from the dead. I can't do that. Neither can you. You think, well, why does this matter? I mean, why, who, who cares if my relationship with Jesus isn't good? Who cares if I'm in that category of rejection? Who cares so what it doesn't matter? Well, it really matters, at least according to Jesus, and he would know he's God. He asks those in front of him, so what do you do with servants like this? If you've struck a deal with tenants to, you know, to, to farm your land and they're not being responsible, what do you do? And they answer according. What they know the right answer is, is, well, you send in people to kill them. Right? What they've done is murder. Multiple cases of murder. It's premeditated murder. We have them confessing the premeditation. It's planned out evil. What do you do to people who reject God's plans in such a way? Well, they themselves, the answer they, those good people give in verse 41 is that Jesus will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants. Now, what he's hinting at here is that eventually uh, salvation's going to be taken from the Jews, it's going to be given to the Gentiles. Which is really comforting, because not all of us in the room, but many of us in the room are Gentiles, not Jewish, which is really a sweet thing. But I I would kind of say, realistically, here's the reality. Because Jesus is in charge of creation, because Jesus is the agent of creation, he is the Lord of life, he is the king over all things, the king of the cosmos, rejecting him, it's bad, obviously, but for two real reasons. One is, as he lays out here, there's destruction down that path. This is not my favorite point to talk about, I'll be honest. Out of all the things I like preaching, this is really high on the list of ones I don't like preaching. The rejection of Christ ultimately ends in destruction. Jesus describes it in verses 43 and 44. It's like uh, a stumbling block, you know, that thing where you're you're walking through the house in the middle of the night, you don't turn the lights on and you stub your toe on something that the children left out, makes your eyes water, it hurts so bad. He goes one step further to say that this thing that you stub your toe on, it's not just going to be kind of a stumbling block that you bump your toe on. It's actually going to become the entire centerpiece of God's house inside creation. In fact, it's going to be a stone so great that it will be dropped on people and destroy them. I don't like this reality. I'm not God. I'm thankful I'm not God. I would be a terrible God. And this is a reality that is hard for me. I have people that I love with all of my heart that are not in this category. I have people that my soul longs for them to know Jesus that do not, and it grieves me. I pray for them. This rejection doesn't just have a a problem in the end, it also has a problem kind of in the middle, in the beginning, even now, and that is it's missing out on a relationship with God. Friends, what, what the Lord is showing even in this parable, it ends with such horrible destruction, but what he's showing in this is really the kindness of the Lord Jesus. 
It's amazing. Honestly, if I had people that were renting out, uh, you know, my old house or something, and I sent somebody to go collect the rent, and they killed the first person, I would be done with them at that point, right? The first murder would kind of be enough. I'd have the police at their house. They'd all go to jail. They'd all be done. It'd be over, right? Wouldn't have to wait for a second servant or a third servant or fourth servant. I was certainly not sending my son. Instead, what God is showing is he's showing that he is the God who is merciful, and he is so merciful that even in this, there is the implied possibility of change. Friend, if you find yourself, whether you're a professing Christian or a professing unbeliever, if you find yourself in a situation where you are opposed to the Lord God, that is not a permanent condition at this point. You're still alive. You're this side of the dirt. There will be a day where that changes, but not yet. And the amazing thing is that to find peace with God instead of war with Him costs you literally nothing. You see, that's again why the cross is so significant. That's why we read that John 19 passage and why it's so important that Jesus ends it with, it is finished. What is finished? Well, see, what Jesus was doing on that cross was he was serving as a representative. Namely, he was serving as my representative. He was serving as my representative in in the war that I had been participating in against God Almighty. He was my representative saying, I will accomplish peace on the cross on behalf of all of my people and it will cost them nothing and it is finished now. Not then, not later, not six months from now. It's finished on the cross, which is really great. That's several years before I was born. Peace with God. We're getting ready to go to the table where we're going to share the meal of Christ Jesus. You think this is kind of a, it's a, a weird symbolic action that we're going to have, and I'm going to explain that in just a moment. But what it is designed to do is to show that God himself actually, really fellowships with people. And we have the privilege of recognizing either we are at war with God, or in Christ and in Christ alone, we can find peace. Which path will the Lord take you down? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Even when I don't want to preach it, it's still true. Even when we don't want to believe it, it's still true. Even when it makes us angry, it's still true. Change our hearts. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.